Welcome back to Recurrent Events, episode three, and back with me is my uh, my recurrent partner, my recurring partner, my my partner in crime here, Mr. Wesley Chance. Welcome back, Mr. Wesley Chance. Hey, it's good to be back. Um, this is, I think, the most frequently we've done this particular one uh, since it was just last week that we sent put out the second episode, and here we are, the following Friday. Yeah, and I, I know we were we were thinking about doing uh, either weekly or uh, bi-weekly, I think it is, or bi-monthly, whatever it is, when it comes to two times a month or uh, once every two weeks. Uh, but the, the main reason uh, I think we wanted to talk today was because I had a chance to read one of your blog articles on sort of what it's like to be a substitute teacher and what you would like to do with substitute teaching and what it affords you the abilities to do and what you think could be different about being a substitute teacher. Because now you've been a classroom teacher and you've also been a long-term sub, and you've been a sub now up in Spokane for some time. So you've, you've gotten to see a couple different uh, ways of doing the teaching thing. And you've also taught online and are doing this with me. So um, you, you had written a little bit about the certification process. And I know even though we both share the same master's degree, I sort of went, I went to a state, California, that requires any public teacher to get a certification. So I immediately pursued that, though I, I was very much jealous of you and the fact that you, you didn't because you went to Arizona, which didn't require that. And um, now you're sort of running into some of the problems of not having some sort of certification. Um, and I was, I was really interested to know sort of broadly your thoughts about the cert certification process of teachers, what you know from the Arizona and sort of uh, Seattle and, and even uh, or excuse me, Washington, you're in Spokane. Uh, good job, Gonzaga, last night. And, um, and um, also Maryland, because you've taught there as well. Um, and I could maybe fill in some details about the certification process and what it does here in California. We have a, you know, a very, the most rigorous in the country um, and probably the most expensive as well. Um, and I do believe it is the model for probably everywhere else. Though I suppose it's a federal system now. Um, when it comes to sort of no, well, no, it is state. Um, hmm. But we're trying to make it well. That's something I'd like to talk about too. To what extent uh, education should be a local thing, and to what extent it should have uh, sort of a national uh, sense to it. And maybe if we get philosophical, that's what we'll get to. And so, um, sorry, Wes. Long question. That's okay. No, I mean, there's a lot there, and I, I kind of sense that the. Um, state federal question is a, a very important one actually uh that might sort of underlie in some ways a lot of the rest of that um at the time that i subbed in maryland they did not require subs to have any particular certification and um, at the time that i taught in arizona they didn't require uh, charter schools to have teachers certified as teachers but to have instead specialty or expertise in some uh, fashion in their in a field that they actually taught, um, at least for the high school or second the secondary school level. Um, and, and how was that proved? How was that proved? Oh, there there was a few different ways you could show it: either a certain amount of coursework, um, a degree, or you had to, in some cases, take a equivalency test, uh, mm -hmm. like an exam. Um, so there's a lot of legal sorts of, um, I guess you could call them loopholes, really, to uh, allow someone like me to teach um, in those states. In Washington State, there's similarly a kind of exemption 
um, in, in subbing. So just to be a substitute teacher, they recently um, passed a provision that allows you to do that with only a bachelor's degree and then uh, meeting certain other requirements like a, a need for subs in your, in your locality um, in the state. And then you can get certified to be just a substitute teacher in just that district. And I think that the term is like three years on that. And my, this is my third year. And so I'm sort of at a point where I'm going to have to um, go through that process again. I'm not sure exactly what the process is to, to renew that, but I'm told it's not too bad. But, you know, it's just like, it makes me wonder if maybe I should go ahead and try to get that full certification so I just don't have to do this again, you know? And so, so I stop getting hassled by the man, you know? <laughs> but but uh, at the same time, uh, it's, it's a really sweet job being a sub. I, I really like it because it does allow me a lot of leisure time that I didn't have as a full-time teacher um, at the charter school where I was working. Uh, and I, I suppose that probably most teachers don't have unless they've really got their classes locked down uh, or have really given up uh, trying very hard. <laughs> they probably bring home a lot of grading and do a lot of planning and all that good stuff that you do as a teacher. A sub gets away with not doing that. And I think that's awesome. And I think, you know, there's lots of ways in which certification is probably useful for teachers, but I so far have found it to be onerous and undesirable. Well, you know, so I, uh, to what extent do you think, and just to get a little speculative with this, and I can fill in some gaps from California's process, which I'm, I'm no major fan of having had to go through it and pay quite a bit of money to do it. I'm effectively still in the, still in the red when it comes to uh, netting money off being a teacher. So I've been a true federalist when it comes to all of this, moving to a different state in order to teach the children of another person, another people's community, uh, you know, uh, what I acquired through painstaking effort and uh, sacrifice of great amounts of money, right? And now I, I teach effectively for free when it comes to the pain off of my student loans. So that's sort of an interesting uh, thing to add in there as well that, well, so, when you look at the legal profession, there's a high bar and there's literally a test called the bar to get there and you have to do a graduate program to get there. And, um, and then, you know, you, you make some amount of money, you make less if you go public, you make more if you go private. Uh, to be a doctor, there's also a certification process, which is fairly intense. Um, you know, you go to med school, it's very hard to get into med school. You have to have a certain sort of score on the MCAT, uh, MCAT to get into med school, which, uh, you know, correlates very highly with G, which correlates highly with IQ, which means you have to be, you know, pretty smart, which is something that is at least uh, highly correlated with genetic factors. Um, and um, then, you know, again, you can make uh, enough money to pay off your loans at some point, which will be considerable. But the thing about teaching is that teaching has a cert certification process but I'm unclear that it has a direct correlation with one's ability to teach in the same way that uh, going through medical school and then a residency program has uh, an effect on somebody's ability to be a doctor or going through law school and then sort of like a rigorous uh, junior partner or associate program with a firm makes one into a lawyer. It, it seems like the, the process is costly, but short and ineffective and does not build the skills necessary in order to produce an actual capable teacher, nor focus on 
the attributes uh, of like classroom or personnel management that could be easily brought in for management science and uh, developmental and social psychology, as well as um, teaching actual content knowledge, which is like intelligence, the, the most important thing a teacher can bring to the classroom. Absolutely, man. And so you've actually taken some teacher training certification classes, I am certified. right? Yes. Yeah, so, so you you can speak to this from within the the system a bit better than I can. I've I've never I've literally never taken a class towards certification. I did take one education class, but it was in the context of being a writing tutor at my undergrad institution back in Maryland. So so that's as close as I've ever come to like the educational uh, academy, so to speak. I I I, I avert. I avert my gaze from it as much as possible. I avoid it. Um, and I feel like I could, I could say, you know, even stronger than that, it doesn't necessarily help you be a teacher. I think that it could well make you a worse teacher to go through a lot of that process and, and rigmarole. And, you know, many teachers don't stay in the profession more than a few years. Whereas both of us have been in it for like a decade, and I think that speaks to our, you know, foundational training, which is in liberal arts, which is what sustains us, I think. Well, yeah, and you have to be tough and strong to be a teacher. I think that's a big weeding out factor. But, but then, um, <clears throat> well, it kind of sounds like what's making you, part of what is making you buck against the man and the system that he imposes on us in our states with these certifications is that there's a, a drive towards professionalism with teachers and actually getting them certified so that there is a difference between uh, that person who is in the room with your children and anybody else. Um, but also that there's sort of a, a sort of feel and there, there are always progressive sort of trends in education too that focus on the artistic aspect of it, right? Like sort of um, Montessori, methods or progressive school methods where like they go without curriculum or without classroom or without direction. I mean, those places I think tend to work because they, they have a high IQ population in general. And so it almost does not matter which direction you turn those kids in. And so long as you teach them some basics because they're so quick, they can pick up what they need to. Um, I don't, I don't know that that would work at every level. And I think that's a conversation I would like to have about problems with, um, ideology affecting American education in ways that are not supported by science, that science could then help us to correct in a systemic way in order to produce better actual outcomes with our students. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of interest in data and measurement of what seems to work and how to define that. And I think that there's a lot of, like, ironically, charter schools where teachers are, tend to be less traditionally certified but are well trained and like very passionate uh like kip schools tend to do really really well in lots of measurable ways um they're not as you say like progressive in that sort of anything goes kind of sense quite the contrary they're you know they have kids wear uniforms and they have pretty strict curricula and this and that um and they they take a lot of pains to like measure what they do and find what's effective and like work on those kind of best practices and things. Um, I, I just think that for me, even that is not really, I, I think that that is not really desirable um, writ large probably. Uh, it's, it's obviously very helpful for 
um, like changing long-standing problems in school districts that aren't doing well and, and all that is very good but as a teacher I, I think that I would burn out of a place like that you know I, I just don't know that I would um, be able to kind of maintain that level of intensity um, for a long period of time and so I don't know that that's really the best model for building long-term solutions to these kind of vast educational <laughs> morasses that we find ourselves in but Anyway, I don't know. Like, that's all very speculative. I, I just, I feel that the, the idea that liberal arts and leisure can be included in a solution seems to me just as important as having, like, scientific backing and uh, rigorous data and all that good stuff as well. Yeah, no, you're, ma you're making me think so many interesting uh, thoughts right now, especially about how the KIPP Academies have a sort of uh, functional relevance in certain populations and certain, um, you know, possibly certain socioeconomic strata too, and how one might approach educating um, within systems like that in a different way in order, you know, if one sees society as sort of a stepping, you know, a, a staircase that one can climb up, people at one level, as opposed to people at another level, um, would require different sort of and this is something we run into in the education world, you know, when we run into individualized education plans, like people at different developmental levels, and we know this from Piaget too, need to learn differing things at different times and possibly at different rates in order to get to the next level and continue to progress up. And so it makes perfect sense that, um, especially if we used IQ as a measure, that we would have specific schools that would focus on, you know, putting grouping students in a relevant way together so that they could work in an optimal way to produce optimal results, uh, you know, optimally making them good citizens, but also highly skilled and capable of entering a profession at some point, which seems like it is part of the uh, conversation when we talk about project-based learning and things like that in the, the industry, but it's also very much not a part of the conversation when we simply focus on, say, sending students to college because it is by no means obvious that simply sending someone to college will prepare them for a profession uh, in their life. And, and as you say, I mean, the debt that you accrue is not necessarily uh, serving you well in whatever profession um, you do end up finding yourself in after college. It's that, that, that higher education and the cost of it is I think a whole other, whole other discussion, but, but quite, yeah, quite related, I suppose, to to the, the sort of public education um, designs and, and goals as they sort of see them. Um, well, you I, know, I, it's tied, yeah, sorry, it's tied to our goals because we see, yeah. because of the cost of higher education, that's why we're offering this. And also, as people who are civically minded and have a public spirit, we're trying to be the ultimate public teachers, right? We're teaching anybody who will listen and putting it out there for everybody. And so I, I do, I do see that spirit running through you and through, through myself. And that that can be also why you sort of buck at certification because you sort of have the essence of a teacher. And so who, you know, who's going to tell you you're a teacher better than you just doing what you do? Yeah. Well, I think it's always a good question to ask, like teaching for what, or like, you know, success, how, how are we defining that? Um, 
with respect to education, what that actually looks like. And, you know, I, here's an interesting way I think about this sometimes is like, I was in many like measurable respects, a really good student in school. But looking back, I don't think that I really cared practically at all about my classes. Like I just wanted to kind of get through them and get to go home. And then I could like read books and play video games and yeah. play soccer. You know, like I wanted to do all these things as a kid. And being at school was really not one of them. Um, I never, never got into that until college. And then it was like a, pretty much a 180, you know, like right. the kind of learning community there was just so vibrant. Um, and that's not something that kids are getting, even in these like, quote unquote, uh, high performing schools. Uh, in most cases, like I, I really loved the school I taught at in, uh, in Chandler, but um, there's many ways in which it was like much more high stress than is really conducive to like loving learning for its own sake, which I think is really the goal that I'm interested in. So, well, so I have it, about that, that. Yeah. In what ways is, can that be the goal of any education besides that of the university, which I consider sort of like the halo education, right? It used to be sort of super finishing school um, uh, in the 19th century, the university, um, where, where, you know, a gentleman went, went who was going to be a, in a higher profession, like a, theo, like a preacher or, excuse me, priest, a lawyer or a doctor, and um, went to indulge in the greatest thoughts that had ever existed, you know, being in those libraries with, you know, people like Plato, Aristotle, and such. Um, to what to what extent can that actually helpfully be moved down to the secondary level, which I think is something we've both tried to do, where, when the secondary level's function might be, rather than edifying the student, uh, to prepare them for a trade or to prepare them for for the next step of life and whatever that happens to be, the next step of life being autonomy in some way or another. Well, yeah, I think, I think that these are things that teach you how to learn is mm. kind of what it comes down to. And, you know, in many ways, um, reading is, has been that sense about, you know, the, the, the scientific revolution and, and the Renaissance and that has like, gradually been sort of seeping down through the levels of society ever since. And yes. I think that we're at the point now where it's, it's widely enough available and people are, are potentially given the kind of leisure time that's necessary because we have, you know, so much material um, well-being and so, such advanced technology. There's no, I don't see a reason why people shouldn't have the opportunity to study um, these kinds of great classical liberal arts and humanities types of things right alongside of all of their STEM and other, you know, sorts of training and, uh, you know, technical stuff they might want to do. I, I think that there's, there's really, there's room for both. And, and more than that, I think that the, the humanities are kind of closer to thinking about what it is that that motivates you to learn anything right whatever it might be and and to like cultivate that power and that desire for learning um that's always sort of the question that i come back to and, and how best to do that how to do that without 
maiming or distorting, right? The things that the person themselves might want to do um, to sort of guide and shape a, a desire for learning without making it something kind of hackneyed and uh, forced. It's it's a real that's a real sort of question that I, I struggle with, and I, right now I'm feeling like you know play and um, games and things like that are a very interesting way to approach it as well as language and reading those that have been sort of the traditional approach I think um, but you know there's I feel like it's a very open and new territory and that's why it's so exciting to kind of explore it along with you right and I mean I think um, I mean I have multiple questions based on that like how do you think best to develop a community of learning and do you think developing a true community of the minds might be part of the answer to the increasing rates of anxiety, depression, and suicide in the young now, which are also quantifiable. And to what extent, this is a tangent, um, uh, we now know through neuroscientific discoveries more about the nature of the brain and its relation to human behavioral adaptation and how humans develop throughout time that could then be used to model, um, you know, fairly precise and strong behavioral you know educational models right like we can give we can teach teachers ex the exact variable ratios necessary to optimize the reward they give to their students and start to teach them you know the best ways to manage to manage their students to get the best output again this is what i was mentioning about like management science and neuroscience being useful for um for doing education better in, in uh, quantifiable ways. But um, to what extent is sort of what we've learned and what we're learning right now also coming against a giant edifice and old, old institution of teaching where we still use bells that are vestiges of factories um, and still have the same sort of like uh, disciplines that are broken into uh, that that uh, were first split apart, also for fairly artificial reasons. Um, well, though, I don't necessarily want to go that route. I, I do feel like there may be actual differences, uh, certainly between, like, say, English and science, which uses the scientific method. But, um, but um, to what extent are recent innovations um, blocked by old institutional structures, which might now be irrelevant and difficult to dismantle? and to uh, modify, at least on a wide scale range. I, I wonder to what extent this should be done locally, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think if I'm correct, I might be getting this wrong, but I think that charter schools themselves grew out of um, ideas that kind of were hatched within public education as they were looking at some of this that you're describing and saying like, how do we start to chip away at this, which is not, not really serving the students as well as as, as we'd like. And um, so people within the teachers unions actually advocated for having these sort of experimental schools. Um, and charter schools have really exploded because people really like them. Like generally people sign up to be on those waiting lists because they see that those schools are, are performing um, and offering things that the, the neighborhood schools are not. Um, now, I mean, I don't know that there's, as we said, there, there might be different needs in different places. And so I don't know that there's like a one answer to these kinds of questions, but as you're describing, 
the, the ways to approach them do seem to be along the lines of a, as we talk about in other places, a consilience, right? A, a coming together of um, scientific inquiry and humanistic ends and, and having both of those sort of in mind, um, it seems like those are ways in which uh, teachers of whatever subject can sort of feel that they are a part of something bigger. Uh, and I think that that's, you know, for all that teachers are not as respected as other professions and aren't as paid as highly, that sense that they're involved in a, in a great enterprise or endeavor um, and that they are sort of like learning along with their students in various ways, that I think is kind of what still attracts people to the field, right? And and there's there's now with <laughs> with the technology that we have, like there's no reason not to try all sorts of cool and experimental things, um, both within and outside of the, the traditional institutions. Um, it's it's a really, really exciting time because on you know, all day long I can be subbing whatever class, you know, doing whatever thing the teacher left me for us to do, which is generally like mind-numbingly little. But then, you know, meanwhile, I can be reading and talking and learning from the students and like thinking about all the ways that we can change this, um, this, this uh, system and like actually be changing it when I get home and talking to you and reading and writing and doing all those things. You know, it's like, those things can happen hand in hand. The, the, the system is there as I think of it kind of like a, a chrysalis, you know, from which all these, these new forms are emerging. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think about that too, also being within the system and working in a charter school program that um, basically what I get to do is active philosophy every day. A lot of what I do is share in contemplation with the students and engage in the process of thought in front of them and then articulate those thoughts publicly for them to, to in order to inform them. And so I'm actively involved in the shaping of their minds and the information which will be of relevance to them, uh, as well as I, I build procedural knowledge into them too by you know uh, having them write and having them um, and then criticizing the writing or editing it so that they then have to edit it as well. So, you know, I'm actually helping to embody within them new capacities. So I am actually learning how to enhance human or it, to enact human potential, how to help a person embody their latent talent. And in so doing, I am also starting to embody my latent talent because I'm getting better at it. I'm getting better as a teacher every year. And so I get to observe not only the growth of my students, but also since I teach the same classes most years in a row, which is not a privilege a lot of, I think every teacher gets, I get to also have that fixed uh, factor so that I can see that measuring stick so that I can see myself improve as well. And that, that, that too is part of the rewarding aspect of being sort of a teacher. You, you are an artist with a canvas uh, you know, that class is that canvas, that static structure, that factor, and your performance is the variable. And I think that's also an important thing about a charter school where you, you know, your performance is managed and, you know, you never get tenure. So you always have to be getting better. You're, you have to be like a professional athlete. You have to be like a professional. 
you never get that guaranteed check. Um, which, you know, Plato says that so long as you have an authority above you, you will act essentially appropriately in the laws. And I think that's correct, that when you are not given the leeway in order to become corrupt or poor at your job as a teacher, which is sort of the idea behind a charter teacher, just to mention another aspect of the profession, that uh, it, it does keep you sharp. Like when you're an athlete and you have to every year perform in order to be picked up for the team. Not to the same degree because we, in general, you know, there are a lot more teachers than there are pro athletes, but the same idea I think lies behind it or underneath it. I'm, I'm imagining now a, uh, a thing like the Monty Python skit where it's like the philosophers playing soccer, you know, like a bunch of people coming to watch great teachers. Um, and maybe that's not so far away from what some of the, like the major podcasts are, are, are basically like, right? You're describing them like professional athletes that, you know, people go and watch that and root for their favorite team. Well, you know, at least in Canada, they have like really, really famous debates between intellectuals every so often. So people go and watch those. Well, as soon as we start getting invited to those, we'll go to those too, because I think we're, you know, (laughs) you got to spend some time in the amateur leagues uh, to show your stuff. before you get picked up in the pros and you know often in baseball circles for pitchers and that would be essentially what we'd be the equivalent to um that it it takes longer for them to come up because they have to develop their minds more than the fielders and the hitters they have to because they have to be able to outthink professional hitters which they can't do at first because they've always just been so talented that they didn't have to be uh as sharp and as uh judicious as they would have to become to be pros and so i think you know, to some extent, we might, and you know, the future will tell us what we're doing now better than I will tell us. Um, so I hope I hear this at some point in the future and get to chuckle at this from a much better place. But, um, you know, I think it just takes longer to develop, you know, true mastery uh, or the ability to wield the Masamune of Sephiroth, you know, the great sword of the intellect. And, you know, I think we're we're going along the right path. We're trying to innovate as teachers. We're offering our, our product publicly. We're offering a product. We're talking about what we think is important. Um, you know, it's like, what more can we be doing? I guess we could have some guests on this show. That should be the next step. Yeah, yeah. We, all right, so we have a friend who recently passed the bar. He was one of our people we thought about bringing on. Um, I, I did enjoy talking to uh, Matt on the Consilience podcast the other day um, as he was our guest in the, the side quests um, that we do. And I, I guess the, uh, the question you brought up about um, mental health as it relates to public education, that's, I think, more along those lines, uh, something that we could talk to him or somebody that he might know who, who works in, in that field uh, in particular yeah Um, and also just something about he works at the charter schools in nashville and tennessee mm -hmm. just some of the things that he's asked to do he works with a very different population from me i would say i'm i'm in sort of a northern north county suburb of san diego uh middle class uh mostly just middle some lower middle a few upper middle but just uh hard-working sort of group of individuals. Um, he, uh, he works with um, a far more diverse population 
than I do. And in some cases, and I'll let him say this when he gets on, I mean, he has several different languages represented in his room with uh, very limited abilities to speak English um, among them. And so, I mean, I, I just want to have him lay that out a little because that just sounds like a recipe for absolute chaos. I mean, that's the Tower of Babel embodied in your classroom. Um. <laughs> it depends, I suppose, on the student because on the other hand, like, I'm trying to imagine myself going to a new country, not knowing much of the language. I feel like I would be a really good student now, you know, now. Sure. Uh, I don't know about if I was, you know, still uh, high school aged or whatever and had all those kinds of distractions going on. But yeah, I mean, I'll be really interested to ask him how much success he's had and, you know, what that can mean because I mean, that's certainly true. You know, take the student's perspective too, that it's, you know, they're they're in a new place where they're, probably trying to learn as much as possible as fast as possible but yeah I'm it's just he's he's had I think a very different experience certainly for me probably from us and um and now he's a lawyer too so it'll be interesting to to have him on the we'll we'll have to let him know and his name is David Oldham now Esquire we'll have to uh let him know that we want him and see if we can get him on here soon next week or the week after all right sounds like a plan Okay, well, great. And uh, so I guess the world keeps turning and uh, the events keep recurring until the next time the same thing happens again. Yep. We didn't get to uh, gene editing, but maybe that'll be another time. Oh, yeah, we did want to bring that up. That is in the news. And so maybe next time, you know, maybe we'll be on education for a little while. Maybe, you know, maybe we can devote a little bit of time to it every day. Maybe we can get to the actual news news. Yeah, that was a, that was a bit of news news not to just you know to sort of take the scope out and de uh take you know demagnify or whatever um or demicrofy <laughs> go to the big picture there the big story has been gene editing and the sort of moral backlash against that or the backlash mm -hmm. of public opinion and also some of the things they did wrong uh morally supposedly has come out and uh that some of their standards were not uh up to ethical par and that'll be well so i just don't know that much about this story yet because i've only been skimming the headlines and the summaries and i haven't even dug in and maybe that's some comment on how the news is taken in these days too but mm -hmm. all right well that that can be for another time as well yeah right 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 so plenty more to come so you know keep your pans there's going to be some gold in the silt as usual <laughs> all right well thanks again thank you